pink polo shorts, strip mall guy, repositioning play, some hotel guy, and cash flow cowboy. Those are some of the accounts that make up the big wide world of real estate Twitter, and they all have at least one thing in common. They're all anonymous. Over the last few years, these accounts have gained thousands of followers by offering up opinions, real estate deals, anecdotes, statistics, and real estate jokes and memes. But why is Twitter such an important platform for the real estate industry? And why are these accounts anonymous? This is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. Originally, just to keep it separate from my personal account and have content ordered towards investing, I actually started out my career on the sell side, um, covering a type of infrastructure stocks and just to kind of converse on that and can only to avoid compliance, even though anything I was talking about really wasn't piggybacking too much off of the research we were doing to try to keep those worlds separate. That's Cashflow Cowboy. At least that's his anonymous Twitter account. He lives in Austin and works with family offices that invest in real estate and other financial asset classes. Though we know his real name, we're keeping him anonymous so he can keep sharing his opinions on Twitter without any repercussions. So why the anonymity? What are some of the reasons that people choose to have anonymous accounts to discuss real estate deals and the general industry? I eventually got into family office life and felt that that was a relatively less covered topic in, it's called the financial Twitter sphere, and was trying to have some interesting, unique content that wasn't as covered because I have the belief that it's pretty difficult to stand out just talking about investments in that world. And you do a better job at getting kind of flow and content um, reached by having a unique lane. I am pink polo shorts. I've been on Twitter, I guess, gosh, over a decade now of brain damage on this website. The guy behind pink polo shorts, which has almost 14,000 followers, is also a real person. He runs acquisitions and asset management for a family office that focuses on multifamily and industrial deals across the Mid-Atlantic. By the username, he told me he was known for being the guy from the East Coast who wore pink polo shorts when he moved out to the West Coast for college. So, I mean, a lot of them are, you know, people have compliance issues. Like that's a big one. Um, if you're at, at a big firm, it can obviously can, there are reasons to be anonymous. Um, it's not a state secret who I am necessarily, but it, it lets you speak with a little bit more candor. It doesn't, it, it, you kind of just, I'm not defending my personal brand. I'm, you know, there's a pink polo shorts brand, I guess, but that makes it a little bit easier. Ted Lasso saying a certain point, it's not me. For reference, his profile picture on Twitter is Ted Lasso, the quite lovable character played by Jason Sudeikis on the Apple TV Plus show of the same name. So why did you get on Twitter in the first place? And when did you really start imparting real estate advice? Gosh, none of this is, I, I hope none of this is advice. <laughs> um, it became a little bit of an outlet for me just because of you know, going from having my life being very structured and working at a very fast pace to 
I didn't have time crunch, the time crunch the way I used to have a lot more free time. And so it was a way for me to kind of just express myself. And, you know, this was, I guess, five years ago. And so it was a little bit of a different space. Um, There's, it was, I guess, a little bit less um, commercial and God, I sound like I'm talking about a band, Um, but it was just sort of like more random anonymous accounts, just like chopping deals up or talking about different things and less sort of like of the, you know, I made X dollars in real estate. Here's how I did it thread. At the beginning, I think there was just something, it was no one really knew what you could do on Twitter and professionally. And I think that kind of allowed people to speak with more candor, um, even the anonymous accounts. Pink Polo Shorts says the real estate Twitter community has changed over the years. He thinks more people are on the app to score deals, raise capital, and less so just to share what they think about the industry in a more candid manner. You would just tweet into the void, I guess, and not sort of understand, like, I mean, I just did that. And now I realize that there are, you know, big capital providers on Twitter looking to do deals through Twitter. And that's a great thing. Um, And it's given people opportunities that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise in traditional channels, which is absolutely a good thing. But, you know, the flip side of that coin is you have people who are, you know, out there trying to basically commercializing um, what was something that was a little bit more free form. And again, like, I don't think it's necessarily good or bad. It's just different. So why are people in the industry so drawn to Twitter? What are the benefits? It's been really helpful uh, to extend your professional network and even build friendships candidly. There's a handful of really, I would say, detail-oriented and smart accounts that talk about the day-to-day pieces of either operating the businesses, value add, what works, what doesn't, if you're doing development, what is really going on, how the sausage is made. Because coming from the limited partner side, you you can get some of that in your conversations with your GPs, but a lot of time you're talking about specific deals. Like as an example, I had learned one thing I shared that if you're looking at a hotel, it's really difficult to underwrite the food and beverage portion of the investment if there is one. And I also have learned that sponsors tend to very much overestimate what that piece of the property is going to do from an operational standpoint. So if you just start to learn these things, you know how to better evaluate an opportunity. The, uh, the, the real estate private equity world uh, can actually be quite solitary for a deal sponsor. And the reason is that you interact with, you know, you interact with your lawyer and your and general contractors, and then you interact with your investors but you, it's, you often either don't interact with other deal sponsors, uh, or at least when you do, you're ha- you have to be very guarded because those people tend to be your competitors, right? And so um, what Twitter does by, by expanding your network to include people in vastly different asset classes, deal sizes, markets, is it allows you to learn from people who are not being guarded. Like my friend, Chris Powers, I have learned an enormous amount from him. He does class B industrial in Texas. That's Moses Kagan, who runs Adaptive Realty, which buys and manages apartments across LA. 
Moses is a big name on real estate Twitter and has more than 63,000 followers. And he's not anonymous and has never run an anonymous account. But his account isn't all that different from the anonymous ones. He also shares advice, opinions, specific anecdotes about some of the deals he's done, and more. He also says Twitter is an avenue for sourcing money. We've raised a hell of a lot of capital from people we've met from Twitter. A hell of a lot. It's really about building relationships at scale. And the relationships lead to all kinds of other interesting things like getting, we, we have a property management business, so we've got hired to manage buildings by people on Twitter. Like, so, but, it, but it's not, it's not transactional. It's like, go be who you are, spread your ideas, and then people who are attracted to you and your ideas will come and offer to be in business with you. So Moses, how do you determine what you put on Twitter? Are you ever worried about lenders or competition or compliance like some anonymous accounts are? Anonymous accounts, there are some real virtues to them because it can kind of be unfiltered in a way. Brent Bishore, who I admire very much, he's not a real estate guy. He's like, he does um, uh, what I would call like lower middle market private equity. He's got a line about looking at companies where he's basically like 80% of every company is like tastes like chicken. In other words, like there's, you know, there's a difference between company A and company B in two different industries, but like a lot of what they do is pretty similar, like hiring and marketing and sales. Like those are, there's a lot of commonalities across all businesses. And so I would, what I would say is there is definitely some secret sauce in our business that I am very careful not to share on Twitter, but there's so much of building one of these platforms that really is tastes like chicken. Like the reason that I can learn from Chris Powers or, uh, or Keith Wasserman or whatever, who are doing things that are, you know, they're different than what we're doing is that so much of the, there's so much of the taste like chicken part, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't share about deals that we have in contract, you know, when there's like a thorny, I don't, I try not to give like addresses and things like that, but you would find, I think you'd find that most of the, the issues that you have are not, there's no secret when you're talking about like how slow the Los Angeles Department of Building and Safety is in, in approving accessory dwelling units. Like that's something that I've been like on a little bit of a kick about recently. We're doing a lot of them. So are a lot of other developers in LA. It's a major problem that the city is screwed up and there's no benefit to me of being secretive about that. I'm not offending anyone or, or like causing problems for myself. I'm just stating facts that everyone knows and, and hopefully creating a conversation about that. Moses added that he's never worked for a big real estate firm. So he's never really had to think about compliance or making sure he's not releasing any proprietary information. There are plenty of people on real estate Twitter who aren't anonymous, mostly people who, like Moses, run their own investment firms. Keith Wasserman, whom Moses just mentioned, is one of those people. I think I got on a long time ago, but I didn't really start using it as much and gaining followers and being as active until years ago. I, I don't really know when I started hitting the inflection point and becoming like a micro thought leader, whatever you want to call it. But I, I've always enjoyed it. And I think I just started spending more and more time on it as I saw more and more people and that I started communicating with. Keith helps run Gelt, a multifamily investment firm based out of L.A. On Twitter, he's also known for his love of compounding 1031 exchanges and NFTs. He bought a CryptoPunk NFT that serves as his Twitter profile picture. So historically, real estate has been a very 
old boys kind of network and very guarded and not really like talked about openly. And I think I sort of started do, posting on Twitter, like just what my thoughts were, what was going on in our business, what deals we're working on, like some of my challenges, some of the successes, and just really opening people's eyes to this wonderful asset class, which a lot of people don't really have access to, I'd say. So if it's, you know, beginning entrepreneurs that want to start real estate investment businesses, developers, uh, investors, just anyone in this ecosystem, I think there's millions of people in the real estate world, but there's, there wasn't a lot of active people on Twitter discussing real estate. I asked Keith a similar question to Moses. Being a public account, how do you determine what you put out on Twitter? Are you ever worried about lenders or competition or compliance? Yeah, so I can't like direct, directly solicit, um, you know, this is a, the new deal we're raising capital for. I can talk about our platform. I can talk about our, the way we look at deals and, and I need people just to reach out to us if they're interested kind of thing. So um, that's how I've gotten people to invest in our deals, not directly showing them, you know, this is the open deal that we're buying, but more, this is the kind of stuff we're doing. And, you know, if you're interested in learning more and stuff, contact me. He says he did get in trouble once though. You know, I recently got in a little trouble. I, I sort of put whatever I feel out there and it's sometimes only one person, I, th I thought it was a net positive. And I think it was, I think you even put it in print and I, I was happy with it. I'm like, I, I, I put something like, yes, yeah, sex is cool, but have you ever done a massive cash out refi? And I thought it was really funny and cool. And I got a lot of positive feedback from that one. One of my like mentors is like, what if a lender sees that and they're more conservative? And I'm like, you know what, maybe, maybe sure, maybe one of them might think that. And, but I think at the end of the day, we're all people and it, it's pretty funny. And I think probably other people talk about it. It's probably a net positive, I think. For anyone, Twitter can be pretty daunting. I should say I'm not a huge tweeter myself. I'm more of a lurker. But is being on Twitter necessary for someone who wants to get into the real estate industry? One thing I'm very, I guess, I'm very focused on, is, especially because I sort of, I didn't do banking. I didn't, I had sort of a non-traditional background and I got, I was sort of self-taught, um, especially at the beginning of my career. And I'm very you know, cognizant of the fact that there are younger people trying to build a career uh, on Twitter, or there are folks who are looking to invest in real estate who don't necessarily have, ha don't have as much experience as, as other folks. And it's very easy to lose money or go to, you know, do things that are not productive. And I just want people to understand the risks that are out there. The other day, Pink Polo Shorts tweeted, saw an Instagram real estate influencer define cap rate as market rent divided by purchase price plus cap X. So uh, be careful out there. To clarify, that's not how you calculate cap rates. It's the ratio of net operating income or NOI to a property's value. He also thinks people on Twitter should be more open about the risks associated with investing and that old deals are nuanced and different. What I have a problem with is people who are saying, you know, this is my investment vehicle and they're not open about the risks that they're taking or about the product they're actually delivering. And I just want people to be aware of that. You know, I had a tweet the other day about what the total shareholder return for MAA was over the last five years. And I think it was like a 19% compound annual growth rate over the last five years. That's daily liquidity, lower leverage, you know, best in class management. And 
if you're doing a private real estate deal, like you need to not, you need to do significantly better than that, in my opinion, to justify the illiquidity risk, the higher leverage um, and execution risk compared to NAA. For the most part, Moses and others think that real estate Twitter is a pretty welcoming community. He says someone will always be willing to jump in and answer a question. There's no like real estate Twitter in the sense of like, you don't get like a, a badge or something. <laughs> like we're not sending out hats. Uh, it's just a bunch of people who like to talk about real estate and like basically we've all more or less found each other. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach us at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking at how young Wall Street bankers are using their hefty bonuses to buy up real estate across New York. Tune in then.